So today is uh, December 21st, and uh, it is 2008. This is our last Sunday service before Christmas, and our second to last Sunday service of the year. That's amazing. Uh, don't forget that if you need your giving statement to include giving for the month of December, it needs to be in before the end of the calendar year. And uh, let's get into our message. So uh, you're going to want to turn to Matthew 16. Our title today is called Clash of Cultures. Uh, y'all notice the Roman columns on the sides of the stage? Yes. We were actually going to leave them on the stage. We had it set up for a wedding. And uh, by the way, uh, it was successful. Bob and Lynette actually are Mr. and Mrs. Cooks at this point. Uh, first day of their honeymoon. I don't know why they're not here. Somebody want to call them? Uh, so, so we had columns everywhere. And it, it began my mind uh, on a track that uh, of curiosity anyway. How do we end up with such a contradictory setting of Roman columns and Jewish art uh, and Jewish religious items. And then, how does that work? How many people have ever come into our church and said, well, are you guys Christians? Uh, are you Jews? Are you Messianic? You know, and all of these terms. And as I began thinking about what a paradox we must be to some people, I drove down the street and uh, looked out and I saw a giant, fat, bald guy with a strange ZZ Top-like beard <coughs> on his face with camels to the left and the right of him and men dressed in what looked a little bit like togas surrounding farm animals and a baby. And I thought... You know, that is kind of a paradox in and of itself. What is this winter suit on a fat guy have to do with the Middle East? I mean, everybody else is dressed for heat, he's dressed for cold. How does that work? Mm -hmm. And I know that I've talked about this at previous Christmas times, but it, it dawned on me in a new way uh, this year, and so I want to share that with you. Your bulletin has a section in it for notes. And the reason is, uh, you're going to have some history today. The history is not just applicable to Christmas. The history is applicable to the state of the church today. It's applicable to a better understanding of the culture in which you read when you read the Bible. You should write down some of these names and dates. History, in its very essence, is His story. So when you hear some of the things that sound like a history discourse, you're hearing the story of Jesus. It's just not called the nativity in that setting. Amen? Amen. You ready? Yeah. No? Only Michelle's ready? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that she's ready, but she's I my sister. You know? You hear that? She's my sister. I told you to go to Matthew 16, uh, but I'd really rather you go to Romans 12. Uh, so do that. It's like a boss I had once, you know? Uh, you had to ignore the words that came out of his mouth, read his mind, and then, if you didn't get it perfect, suffer severe consequences. There. There at work or there in the... Uh... All right. So, uh, in Romans 12, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform 
any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. My wife likes to bake things, and the other night she had cookies, cookies that I cannot eat. So I was trying not to notice, but I couldn't help. I mean, the aroma, it was a little bit like chumming for sharks. Uh, I kept finding myself in the kitchen. And she had a pattern, and she was pressing it in to cookie dough. And the cookie dough didn't have a choice to resist. The cookie dough simply became whatever the cookie cutter cutout was. There is a, a stencil. There is a format, a worldview that is trying to be pressed upon you all of the time. It's the format, the stencil of empire. It's the format, the stencil of religion. It's the format, the stencil of wickedness, of rebellion. And it is being pressed upon you at all times. And the Word says, do not conform to this. Unlike that cookie dough, we have the ability to rebel. The gospel in its very nature is a paradox in and of itself. It's subversive to this world system, and yet it's based on unity and submission, just not to the pattern of this world. So while we're meek and we unify and we love each other, we are also deeply rebellious when you think about the pattern of this world. This has always been the case. The first century was no different. The centuries prior to that in Judaism were no different. There has always been Gentile nations, powerful monarchies, who were trying to force upon the people of God a pattern. They didn't always do this consciously. It's done through the form of government. Slogans on coins, art, uh, music. All of those things are speaking one loud message that says you need to be like this. The reason so many of our young people and our women and men too, but especially teenage years, and then our women feel so inadequate and so insecure, it's because you're kicking against a pattern that is out there that is held up as perfection. And not only is it not perfection, it's not even real. It's simply designed to make everyone want what someone has that is mythical. And that force, that pressure is upon us all of the time. Well, the Gospel was written in a setting just like that. It's just that the pattern was disguised differently during those days. You know, the holiday season is often a time of conflict in homes. I was at an event here recently where a sincere man who seems to <coughs> genuinely love the Lord was very concerned because someone had alcohol at the event. Nobody was even drinking the alcohol. It was simply present actually in the room. The man stood up and protested that as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, he could have nothing to do with this and stormed out of the room, red in the face. And as I began thinking about that, I, on one hand, admired the man. He stood up in front of all kinds of people and he took a stand for something that he thought was right. Can you see how that could be admirable? The sad part is, though, the pattern that he's accepted doesn't fit Jesus. Jesus wouldn't have done that. It happened to be at a wedding. Jesus actually took water and made it wine at a wedding. How do we get so far away from the biblical pattern that our conscience tells us we must do something like that when Jesus ate and drank with people on a daily basis? Jesus consumed more wine in a week than was present in that room that night. 
because he was a Jew and the Jews did. So I wanted to look at how these cultures came about. I wanted to look at the biblical setting and I want to free us from the feeling that everything around us is wrong. There is a pattern that this world tries to force on us that we must resist. There is a biblical pattern that we must submit to and it's fun and it's full of life and it's full of freedom. And we need to recognize the conflict between these two cultures. All of this story starts, if you're taking notes, in the 7th and 8th century B.C. So we're starting with the founding of Rome. And when you look at the founding of a nation, what you find is there's always mythology. There is always, for instance, the founding of our nation. George Washington chopped down a cherry tree. He uh, threw stones that skipped over the Potomac. You know, these are things. Do you really know whether that happened? I mean, George Washington may never have owned a cherry tree, but those are stories that are associated with the founding of our nation, and it tells something about us. It, it, it tells that we revere George Washington. It, it says something about our culture. Well, we don't know whether the stories that had to do with the founding of Rome are true or not. What we know is that this is what Rome recorded as its history, and some people held to it in varying degrees, but it's the story that Rome told about itself as far as how it started. Don't you think that's significant? Yeah. It starts with a woman named Rhea Silva. Now, maybe the most important thing about Rhea Silva to know is that in the pantheon of gods, Rhea Silva is a virgin goddess. Not all that popular among Greek culture to have... Uh, chastity prized as something godlike. And so in their story, their their tragedy of the gods, the god of war, Mars, rapes Rhea Silva. And when he does, Rhea Silva gives birth to two boys. The boys are Romulus and Ramus. So when Rome tells the story of its founding, its founding is based on two orphan boys that are the product of a virgin goddess who was raped by the god of war. As you move forward in their history, because Mars killed Rhea Silva, he buried her alive in their story, their tragedy, these two boys needed something to provide care for them, something that would give them substance, something to nurture and care for them, something to parent them, to teach them. And what Rome says about itself is that a wolf was provided. A she-wolf. This she-wolf actually, you see on Roman architecture, you see it on the coins, on their art, the propaganda of the day. Breastfed, if there is such a thing, for a wolf, these two boys. So you'll often see Romulus and Remus on their hands and knees drinking from a she-wolf. This is what Rome tells as a story about itself. Prominent in their picture is a virgin goddess. Prominent in their picture is a god of war. Prominent in their picture is that they look like men but were raised by wolves. This is because something about that story is the culture that defined Rome that they apprise. They apprise the idea that we look like men but we are fierce as wolves. They apprise the idea that the highest form of female flattery would be if you were a virgin. They apprise the idea of a god of war that can take and to conquer and do whatever he wants. 
this says something about Roman culture. Well, as time goes on, maybe the most famous of all the Roman emperors is Julius Caesar. Now, if you didn't just love history like I did, at the very least, at some point in high school, you probably had to cover the works of William Shakespeare. And when you did, one of his more famous plays is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is killed in 44 B.C. And he's assassinated. Uh, everybody remembers that somebody named Brutus stabs him and Julius turns and says, et tu brute, right? It's kind of the famous stab in the back. Again, something about their culture is described here. This is the most famous of all scenarios in Rome. One brother stabbing another. By the way, did anybody know in the mythical story of Romulus and Ramus how their lives end? Hmm. Romulus, the older brother, killed Ramus. You know how he killed him and why he killed him? He killed him over a religious dispute. Isn't that interesting? All of this begins to build a picture about the spirit that forms Rome, the culture that is Rome. Make you wonder why we have things like Roman columns in our church. Why we have in our government buildings white marbled steps and things that look like Rome, huh? So in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar is killed by Brutus. There is a civil war that begins to occur then. Mark Antony and a young man named Octavian, who is the grandnephew of Caesar, Caesar, begin to fight over the kingdom. And Octavian in time wins out, and the Senate proclaims Octavian emperor. But history does not record Octavian as Octavian. The Bible does not record Octavian as Octavian. The Senate in Rome decided that the name Octavian was not, not fitting for him. And they chose a name that was Augustus. Augustus, according to the Roman Senate, meant someone who is revered like a bearer of light. Someone who is luminous all in and of themselves. Somebody who is august. Someone who is revered. So, in the political propaganda of the day, when you have no 30-second spots, you have no Democratic National Conventions where you can rent these things and walk out on a stage, where you don't have things like that, you hire artists and you hire musicians. And what the artists and the musicians and the poets do is they begin to write songs about you. They begin to write poems about you. They begin to paint murals about you. And all of this is a pattern forming the Roman Empire so that its citizens see it and it is pushing upon them, like all propaganda, a certain thought. And the thought that they most wanted to express about Augustus was that he was like a son of Julius Caesar who was declared to be God. See, when Julius Caesar was killed, a poet said that he saw a comet in the sky and that this was Julius Caesar going to be among the stellar realms as a god. And so when Augustus was appointed by the Roman Senate as emperor and called Augustus, they called him, and in the poems and in the songs and in the murals of the day, Augustus, the son of God. This is the pattern that is trying to be forced upon the world. Luke opens up in the second chapter with the, the words that it was in the time of Augustus Caesar 
that Jesus was born. Now, is that a mistake, you think? Or have there always been competing cultural ideas? Has there always been somebody fighting to put you into a pattern? You understand that the Roman emperors who ruled for almost a thousand years saw themselves as men who brought peace on earth and goodwill to men through military strength, through sheer superiority. They saw Rome as a light on a hilltop for all of the nations of the world to stream to. Now, if you took the words Rome out and put the words body of Christ in, what we would find is a fitting description, wouldn't we? Two competing cultures. Some have said that the writers of the Gospel monopolized the political propaganda of the day to promote Jesus. I don't see it that way. I don't at all. I think that the devil had a counterfeit propaganda campaign and that the writers of the Gospel were simply shedding truth on it. I don't think that if Jesus had chosen to be born today that we would take the slogan change and apply it to Jesus because he was trying to piggyback on someone else's media campaign. I think we would simply tell the truth about Jesus and there happened to be similarities. Do you understand the difference? Yes. Good. Just before uh, Augustus comes into his own and power, there is a <coughs> man appointed as king of the Jews. Uh, an amazing human being. He kills his own sons. Uh, his his uh, wife, he loves her so much. He, he, he loves her enough that whenever he leaves, he appoints somebody to kill her if he doesn't return so that no other man can have her. I mean, that is, that's love. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, he also murdered all the Jewish children in an area two years and down because he thought that one of them may be a king. It's Herod the Great. Herod the Great was raised in Rome and uh, spent time, lots of time, with Mark Antony. And Mark Antony was really uh, Herod the Great's seat of power. Well, the problem is Mark Antony lost the battle with Augustus Caesar. And so Herod had to run right to Rome. And he had to make sure that Augustus Caesar was uh, going to treat him well. And he had to show his submission to him. And one of the things that he did is he said... <laughs> We can all see that you are the Son of God. So we have a Jewish king in the time of Jesus bowing to a Roman emperor calling him the Son of God. Can you begin to see what the devil had in mind here? And so quickly Herod goes and in about 20 B.C. he starts to build cities. And these cities that he wants to build in Israel as the king of the Jews were distinctly Roman. And the Jews uh, were happy on one hand because it brought in Roman business. On the other hand, it, it, it brought in something that was not entirely Jewish, another culture. The cities of Caesarea, do you hear that word, Caesarea? It's like saying Caesarea, Caesar's place, were, and Caesarea Philippi were distinctly Roman. So this is a uh, part of the western coast in Israel where they built ship levees, they built seawalls, uh, and over 250,000 people streamed into it. That is like New York City for the ancient world. And when you're thinking about this, you need to understand something. To get the Romans to want to go to this remote corner of the earth and to show his loyalty to the Son of God on earth, Herod put a temple to Augustus in the Jewish city of Caesarea. 
and it was a temple for the imperial cult, the worship of anybody want to guess? The Son of God. So if you were a Jew and you had to travel through Caesarea, you saw a Roman man claiming to be the Son of God and his building was built by a Jewish king who killed everyone who claimed to be another Jewish king. Isn't that amazing? Then he built, built up near Hermon in the north Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, he also put the temple to Augustus, but he put the temple to all of the other Roman gods. In fact, there is a hole there where a river rushes under the mountain. I've been to see it. I didn't know at the time what they did there. I'm glad I didn't. Where the water disappears under the rocks, they actually threw their babies into the stream and waited to see if blood came out the other side to see whether or not the gods had accepted their sacrifice. You know what the Jews called that place? The gates of hell. They called the mouth of that cave the gates of hell. When we're thinking of Augustus, he reigns from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Now what time period is that in Jesus' life? These are the formative years. These are those years where he's becoming a bar mitzvah, a son of the command. These are those times when he's found debating with religious scholars, asking them questions, and being about his father's business. During that same time, Every year, at the end of December, 12 days of Advent were being celebrated. 12 days of the Advent of Augustus Caesar. They celebrated his birth with 12 special days in December. The poets proclaimed in all of their writings at this time, peace and joy to the world because Augustus would certainly bring something. And the words that they used in their poems were universal peace to the world as God's Son. Now, universal is a very interesting word because when we translate it, it's easy. We just say universal. Unless you have a Latin base and you happen to live in America, then you call it Catholic. The word Catholic means universal church. Isn't it interesting that from Rome, sired by a wolf and a virgin goddess and the god of war we have someone claiming to be the son of god on earth bringing peace to the world we celebrate his birth with 12 special days in december and his goal is to bring universal peace to the world there've always been a clash of cultures if you were god what would you have done come in with a bigger media campaign come in with a more powerful army how unassuming was it to birth a Jewish carpenter and a manger. I mean, Lord, you've got to get your message out, don't you? Do you remember Jesus' brother said, anybody who wants to be a public figure, they, they go to the feast? And he said, for you any time, right. I'm not going with you. Then he goes ahead and goes, but not with them. <laughs> Jesus did not submit to the pattern of this world. And yet, let me ask you something. When we write checks, and we number our years based on his birth, how many of you have ever even thought of Augustus Caesar? The most powerful military machine on the planet at his time. There's a slogan. They put it on coins. They put it on buildings. They put it all over the empire, which was their form of commercials for the day. Right? Form of commercials. There is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved. 
that was popularized throughout his reign. He maintained his own priesthood. You're going to love this. The priesthood of Augustus, the son of God in Rome. You know what they were most famous for among all of the Roman worship? They sold the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that interesting? Now, I didn't make this up. I mean, I'll give you a list of sources right after the service if you want. But does that sound eerily close to anything else that you can imagine? Yeah, it, it did to me too. Turn with me to Matthew 16. Still awake? Yes. You find any of this remotely interesting? Yes. I promise we'll come all the way back around to Santa Claus. How many of you have had that idea when Easter comes around and you're so upset that that rabbit and that egg are stealing all God's glory? And then Christmas comes around. And you're just so upset. I mean, we have these pagan trees to asterisk, I was told when I was first born again. Uh, and the fat guy in the red suit and his little elf. I mean, nobody wants Jesus in Christmas. And I was so upset that in our home we actually didn't celebrate Christmas one year. Reading history will set you free. I didn't realize that in uh, Scotch Presbyterians uh, in the island of Scotland, they cut it out. They cut it out all the way into 1958 from the Protestant Reformation in 1958. The people never stopped celebrating it, but it was actually illegal. I didn't know that in England, Oliver Cromwell cut it out for almost 30 years. He actually banned the giving of gifts because they saw it all as pagan. It was all bad because they learned things like what I'm teaching you now. I want to tell you before this is over, everything about it can be tainted. By the way, anybody in here ever have a good Monday? Ever? Somewhere, somebody's had a good Monday. Charlotte's had a good Monday. Well, it's named after a Roman god. So are you allowed to have a good Monday as a Christian? How about a Saturday? Surely some of you have had good Saturdays. How do you feel about the Roman god Saturn? Do you mean that you, as a spirit-filled Christian, a born-again believer, can have a good Saturday? Shouldn't you turn red in the face and run out of the country somewhere where it's named something else? I mean, where does it stop? Any of you ever had a spiritual experience in your Toyota? <laughs> Who made it? How many of you have ever been blessed with a financial gift? Anybody? Yes. Anybody in here ever received some money and were happy about it? Does it bother you that there's pagan symbols on it? Did that lessen God's miracle in it? I don't know why I was born again in the craziest year that had happened in a while. You know, there were cults going on in the news and all kind of things. And for whatever reason, the church had lost its mind. Because people were looking for owls in their houses. They were looking for any pagan symbol anywhere in their house and they had to throw it out. It all must be bad. Where would you stop? My underwear were made in China and I'm going to keep them. <laughs> Where would you stop? So you in Matthew 16? <laughs> when G This is 16... Wow, Bob and Lynette, Mr. and Mrs. Cook! Mr. and Mrs. Cook! We need to talk to y'all about coming late to church. I can't imagine why you look tired. We had to drop off a duck, so we thought we'd mind come on in. We're glad you did. Have a seat. Hey, isn't that awesome? This is a new spiritual entity under heaven. A brand new creation. Bobby, that's so worn out. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday was a long day. I mean, there are a lot of preparations to, to be made. 
marriage is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. Y'all, we need to rejoice in it every chance you get. And when you have the opportunity to fall in love with somebody that loves Jesus more than they love you, what a special thing. We take it for granted this time of year how many people are actually lonely and how hard that is. And all of our theology and all, something that you can do that is Jesus' hands and feet for people, so you can just be loving and make sure nobody feels alone this time of year. You get excited when holidays come. It's not so exciting if this is the month your spouse died in. It's not so exciting if you feel all alone and separated. You understand? All right, let's get back into Matthew 16. Y'all didn't forget about Augustus Caesar and Julius Caesar. Okay, good. In Matthew 16, starting in the 13th verse, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, so what region is this? This is the region where there's mountains, and in the mountains there are all of the Roman gods, but among them is a temple to Augustus, the Son of God, come to bring peace and joy on earth. Universal peace and joy. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not the dead God, Julius Caesar. Not one of the gods in the pantheon. You are the anointed one that came from the living God. This made Jesus stand out among all of the gods of the world. And I want you to understand that probably there was not a Roman on the planet that could have said this at this time. This was a uniquely Jewish expectation. This was a uniquely Jewish revelation at this point. Because Jesus came to the Jew first, and then after that, to the Gentile. Listen to what happens. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, a rock. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades were standing behind them. This was not some mythical place. This was not the center of the earth. This was not some off-world thing. The people in the place that they're sacrificing babies right here in this mountain, that pattern that tries to force you to conform to it will not overcome the revelation you've just received. There's only one Son of God on earth that came to bring universal peace to mankind. And He is not Roman. What a revelation. Do you think that the pattern of this world, i.e. the gates of hell, would fight against that? I mean, Caesar has got a full-time propaganda machine to convince the world that he is the Son of God and he is the one that's come to bring peace and that the only way for a man to be saved is through Augustus. And now Jesus is standing here with a competing message. Not one with poets. Not one with musicians. Not one with a propaganda machine. Who did he choose? Oh, he chose those that no one else would choose to carry his message. This way, it would never be by might. It would never be by strength. It would be by the Spirit of God that this revelation was born in us. You were not taught to believe that Jesus is the only way. Even if someone tried to instruct you when you were younger, for that to be sincere, for it to be real, it had to be deposited in your heart from above. And the pattern of this world has always fought 
against that process. To recap before we move forward, we have a spirit that is sired by a female wolf, has an allegiance to a virgin goddess that most honors the god of war. Brothers that have a habit of killing each other, usually over a religious dispute. Twelve, ad- twelve days of Advent in December to celebrate the birth of the Son of God, the Caesar of Rome. A priesthood who sells indulgences and is known all over the world. For if you can't get forgiven from anything else with enough money, you can go to Augustus, the Son of God's priest, and buy your forgiveness. And I liked it because they could pay in advance. Jesus asked in that setting, who do people say that I am? And Peter received it. Turn with me to Acts 19. Tell me when you're in Acts 19. There. There's a very special place in the Roman Empire. Uh, Many of the Roman emperors chose as their seat a place where they sit uh, to be worshipped. Not just to be worshipped like in a temple, but their their seat of monarchy uh, was called the Neochorus. And most of the Roman emperors didn't choose Rome for that. They were already revered in Rome. They already were known as the emperor in Rome. When they traveled abroad, somewhere like Ephesus, they wanted to sit on a special throne above all of the other gods. Usually the gods were actually mounted beneath their throne, their figures, so that everyone would know that they were above all of the other gods. What else? How else could you say that? the Most High God. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Revelation, John writes, I know where Satan has his seat. You go look on a map. You find out where that church is located. Okay, so you in Acts 19? Okay, so in Acts 19, we have a scenario that I thought would bless you to hear about. Start in the 23rd verse with me. About that time... By the way, we're in Ephesus, the place that the Roman leaders who claimed to be gods to bring universal peace on earth and had an allegiance to a virgin goddess, that place, that same place, we're there right now, but it's about 60 AD. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Uh, Early on, Christianity was not called Christianity. Early on, it was uh, not considered a separate religion. Early on, it was Judaism, and they were followers of the way, Jesus the Christ. They were followers of the web. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis, by the way, is the Greek name for yet another virgin goddess. Brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. Uh... Did y'all catch that? He makes silver shrines for a virgin goddess. Did I tell you that this virgin goddess had a unique priesthood? Their priesthood, it was not selling of indulgences that uh, the priesthood of Artemis was known for. The priesthood of Artemis was the only priesthood in all of the Greek pantheon that had a male priesthood that was celibate. Only one. Isn't that amazing? In Ephesus. 
So Demetrius is uh, making silver shrines. And he's upset because somebody's there preaching. And they're not preaching that Augustus is God, uh, which he would have had to submit to because Augustus was above Artemis. He's not preaching that Artemis is God. He's preaching that there is only one way. And it is a Jewish carpenter who has been shown to be the anointed one of the Most High God. And this upsets Demetrius. Do you know why it upsets him? Because he's going to lose money. His whole life is based upon a religious profiteering system where his money, his income, is dependent upon people believing a certain thing. It doesn't matter to him whether it's true. His income is based on it. I mean... He's got to feed his kids, right? And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large number of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole provenance of Asia. What a compliment if you're Paul. Can you imagine somebody says, you know, Darren is really messing up our idolatry business here. And it's not just here in Sugarland, Pretty well the whole state of Texas, he's ruined the idolatry business. What a compliment. He says that man-made gods are not gods at all. Unless you sanctify them and inscribe them into your church wall. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the provenance of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Divine majesty. How divinely majestic was she? if a humble Jewish rabbi could steal her divine majesty. But if your divine majesty is manufactured, if it's based on propaganda, if it's based solely on carefully orchestrated oration, carefully orchestrated photo ops, at least in that day, then how divine is it really? See, they're worried that, that people will find out the truth. This is just marvelous. This is just stone. But the pattern of this world is not concerned with truth. It's concerned with superficial appearance and blind allegiance. How strange it is that they call our faith blind. Our faith is based on character and substance. Their faith is based on Botox and plastic things. Watch this. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis! of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia, and they rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but his disciples would not let him. Do you know why they wouldn't let him? The crowd was so angry they would have torn him to pieces. What could make a city in Ephesus so angry that they're ready to kill somebody? Do you know that later this account says most of them didn't even know why they were there? So you have a crowd. Most of them don't even know why they're there. They haven't heard Paul speak. But they're so angry they want to kill someone to protect their religious profiteering. Boy, if you didn't know any better, you would think that you were reading about the 15th and 16th century AD, wouldn't you? Where a mob was ready to kill people to protect their religious profiteering. Am I the only one that has read Western civilization books? This city becomes very, very 
important. See, something happens, and you should write this down. The Bar Kokhba rebellion happens in Israel. Jesus uh, died somewhere around uh, the 30s A.D. He is resurrected. He ascends in glory. In 70 A.D., the city is leveled by the Roman uh, general Titus. And we have an interesting situation at that point. We have a Jewish population that has members of the followers of the way in it, so Jews who are following the Messiah, but we also have a Roman population that hates Jews because the Romans are the oppressors and the Jews are always rebelling. The Jews still wanted their freedom. So they find for themselves not the Messiah, but what they considered to be a Messiah, and they named him, Bar actually his mama named him Bar Kokhba. But a rabbi says, he's the Messiah we need. This is in 132 uh, A.D. And all of Judaism rallies around Bar Kokhba because he's going to throw off this Roman oppressor who is always trying to shove their propaganda down our throats. But there's one group of Jewish people that had a hard time following him. They said, wait, we've already received the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. We've met the Messiah. And it's true that Caesar's not the Son of God, but neither is Bar Kokhba our Messiah. This put them in an unusual position. Can you imagine if you're a Jewish follower of Jesus and you will not side with Bar Kokhba and fight against the Romans? What does that look like? Disloyalty. But do the Romans like you? No. To them, you're just another Jew. Can you see how the followers of the Messiah were caught in a trap? It just so happens that around the same time, the Gentile churches that were growing because the Jewish apostles included Gentiles in what they were doing, were outgrowing the Jewish churches because there were more Gentiles in the world. So now all of a sudden we have Jews who are hated by their own people for being followers of the Messiah. They're hated by the Romans because they're Jews. This was a mixture for uh, something interesting, a catalyst for change. Back to Ephesus for a second. There is an emperor that comes on the scene. His name is Diocletian. He comes on in 284. He reigns to 305. Diocletian is known as a soldier. He's known as somebody who is brutal beyond description. Following Diocletian's death, there was a civil war. Uh, all of the people under him began fighting for his power. From the time that John was writing the Revelation... Whatever you believe about that, whether you believe it was from 70 A.D. to 100, anywhere in there, we had established by a guy named Domitian a Neochorus in Ephesus, a place where the Roman emperor would be seen as the god above all other gods. Actually, people would travel to him and he would say, this I have for you and this I have against you. And they would do the what was called the Domitian Games there, where death and Hades would have to clear the floor of the dead. It sounds a lot like a letter that a guy named John wrote. But this man, Diocletian, set up in the same city his Neochorus. To enter into the marketplace in Ephesus to buy or sell anything, you had to worship these Roman emperors and receive... wasn't on a Wednesday, but you did have to put ashes on your forehead. Anybody ever live in South Louisiana? <laughs> I came to work one day in South Louisiana and people that I had never heard say a kind thing about Jesus. I had only ever heard say foul things. They used his name in a sentence that had uh, an F in it. Like Jesus had a middle initial that was a foul word. But on a certain Wednesday, 
in South Louisiana, they had ashes on their head to show everyone how holy they were. I wonder where they got that practice. There's always been a pattern of this world. So to enter into a marketplace, you had to receive ashes from the emperor's sacrifice on your head. Well, Diocletian dies, and a general named Constantine comes into power. He fights and he beats all of his rivals. Constantine is known in history as Constantine the Great. He reigns from 303 to about 337. He's born supposedly to believing parents in the province of Gaul, which is France today. Constantine has an interesting thing happen to him. Constantine has worshipped all of the Roman gods all of his life. You can't succeed in Rome, some parents would say to their children, unless you worship those gods. And what god do you think he liked the most? Mars, the god of war. The one who took whatever he wanted. But the problem is, it's the year 312, and he's facing a Mulvian bridge. And he knows that he has to march out across this bridge and face an enemy in battle. And that if he doesn't win, his seat of power is lost. So he begins sacrificing to all of the Roman gods and he begins to think, you know, my parents said that there was a Jewish God. Maybe I should talk to him. And while this is happening, he says that he sees a sign in the heavens with the words hoc signio victor eris, Latin, under this sign, go and conquer. And to him, this flaming sword that he was looking at in the sky looked like a cross that was upside down. You know, prior to Constantine, there was never a time anywhere in archaeology that Christians were known by crosses. There's a pattern in this world that is always trying to force us to conform. I'm not saying your crosses are wrong. My wife's probably wearing one now. But it is enlightening to know where it came from. It so happens that he won the battle that day. So when he wins the battle, he begins thinking about this. He says, you know, maybe we should be more tolerant of these Christians. Because Mars didn't give me victory that day. The Hebrew God gave me victory over my enemies. Does that sound at all like something that God would do? It really doesn't, does it? History is divided over whether or not he was a sincere believer because he worshipped all the Roman gods all the way until the last month of his life. In the last month of his life, he did accept Christian baptism. That's admirable, isn't it? And then immediately after he was baptized, he ordered that all the apostles' bones be found and brought to where he was in Rome so that when he was buried, they could be arranged in a way that when they rose at the resurrection, because that's what all Christians believed would happen, they would be paying him homage. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is a spirit that emanates from Rome that wants to be worshipped in the place of God? Hmm. Paul did say something about that. I was trying to remember where it was. That's right. He was in Ephesus. He warned the Ephesian elders on a beach. He said, I know that none of you who have been with me are ever going to see me alive again. And I fear that when I go from your own ranks will rise savage wolves. Savage wolves who will devour you. Do you think Paul was familiar with the Roman way of life? Do you think maybe he knew the history of Romulus and Ramus? Do you think that's possible? Yeah. Why do you think he chose to use the word wolves? Wolves are not all over Israel. I mean, have you been to Israel? You ever read a book about 
a wolf in his rest? Not lots of wolves there. He could have said bears. He could have said lions. He could have said anything. But seems that he knew something prophetically about a spirit that liked to be nursed by a wolf, that honored the god of war, and had a strange affinity for a virgin goddess. And he said, it's going to ruin you. In Ephesus. How about that? So Constantine issues an edict of toleration. And this edict of toleration goes out in 3.13 and you need to hear what it says. The edict of toleration says, now, now, Christianity is tolerable. Well, happy-go-lucky, isn't that great? Diocletian, the emperor before, killed more Christians than many of the emperors, than a lot of them combined. But the next year, now that Constantine's in power, Christianity is tolerable. Does that sound like Constantine the Great to you? Because Christianity is tolerable? Do you know what words he used on his coins? Do you know what words survive to this day as his political propaganda? It's the universal religion of Rome. How did I tell you that you say universal? It's the universal religion of Rome. So I could say it is the Catholic Church in Rome? Hmm. How about that? Now, if you find that shocking, certainly somebody who's watching or listening will find that shocking. Understand, I don't have a problem with a Catholic person in the world. Many, most of you were either Catholic or Baptist. I managed to offend both groups all of the time. But history records these things. We're not making them up. Now let's look at the rest of this history. In 336, for the very first time in history... Very first time in history ever anywhere recorded, and we have lots of writings for the first 336 years of the Christian era. 336 is the first time a Christ Mass is ever mentioned in December. And guess what? It's mentioned in connection with 12 days of Advent. What did the Romans do every December for 12 days? They worshipped Augustus as the Son of God. And in the year 336, after the universal religion of Rome became... Christian, the wolf put on sheep's clothing. Mm. After that happened, suddenly Christ Mass started occurring at the same time period. That's amazing. When the Reformers found this out, they they revolted uh, in the 15th and 16th century. And so they threw it all out. Uh, No more gifts. uh, No more trees. No more Christmas. But you couldn't keep the people from partying in December, no matter what you did. Because they'd been ingrained. I mean, the Romans had three separate holidays in December to celebrate. And everywhere Rome conquered people, they said, hey, look, 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 let's do this. We're going to practice something called syncretism, you and I. I know that our calendar says we're going to worship Augustus. But if you if you want to worship something else and just pretend like they're the same, it's okay. That's what they did. And so if you were in Gaul and you maybe had a harvest festival or maybe you worshipped Saturn at the time, that's okay. We all kind of know what's going on. You just need to give this appearance because Augustus will kill you otherwise. So we're all going to do the same things in the same months and after all, aren't all the gods kind of the same anyway? That's amazing, isn't it? In Ephesus, in the year... 351. First time on the planet, anywhere, ever considered, ever written down, ever discussed. Ephesus where Artemis was. Ephesus where they wanted to kill Paul. That Mary was the mother 
of God. Those words never appear nowhere in the Bible, never in Christian literature, never at any time until 351. And uh, it was a church council made up of no Jewish believers, only Romans. Mm -hmm. They had an affinity for a virgin goddess. <coughs> By the year 431, they called her the Queen of Heaven in church liturgy. They also anathematized anyone. Anathematized means cursed. They anathematized anyone that did not accept the creed as they laid it down. And they purposely made their language so that it would be difficult for a Jew to accept. Because when the Edict of Toleration, toleration was issued so that uh, the universal religion of uh, Rome was Christianity... This coincided with a strong anti-Jewish movement. The devil knew the best hope for the Christian church to stay on track with its Jewish roots, so they made it illegal for Jews to be in Israel anywhere at any time. They also banned them from Rome. And it's amazing that throughout Christian history, all of the Christian Catholic nations at some point have thrown their Jewish population out. I wonder why. I wonder what Satan is trying to accomplish. There's a battle between cultures. There always has been. But I want to talk to you about more practical culture in your life. It was during the year 325, which was the Nicene Creed. This is where we say uh, the Apostles' Creed. I learned it when I was a good Lutheran little boy. That a guy named St. Nicholas first appears on the scene. And this is a time when the Jewish apostleship has been exiled. Uh, they're, they're not there because of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Christianity and Judaism are distinct. In fact, I do need to read you this. This is a popular online encyclopedia about the Bar Kokhba revolt. It says, uh, Bar Kokhba, the commander of the revolt, was acclaimed as Messiah rather than the Messiah, a heroic figure who could restore Israel. That's always their hope, the kingdom to Israel. The revolt established a Jewish state for over two years, but a massive Roman army finally crushed it. The Romans then barred Jews from Jerusalem. Jewish Christians hailed Jesus as the Messiah and did not support Bar Kokhba. They were barred from Jerusalem along with the rest of the Jews. The war and its aftermath helped differentiate Christianity as a distinct religion from Judaism for the first time in history. Now, I didn't write that as a secular encyclopedia did. So what we have in the year 325 when St. Nicholas first shows up is we have a council. But a council that Jews are not invited to and Jewish believers are not invited to. Do you understand that that means that Paul couldn't be there, Luke couldn't be there, Barnabas, if they were alive, could not be there? Peter could not be there? Matthew could not be there? John could not be there? James could not be there? Judas could not be there? None of the men who wrote the Bible would have been invited. So they have their council. They have their council. And it seems that there was a voice of reason in the council who wanted to focus on the divinity of Jesus and none other. This is his contribution, history records, and his name was Nicholas. This is one of the first times he appears in history. The lone voice of reason in 325 in the Nicene Creed. By the way, the, by the year 351, where we begin to have the language about Mary, the mother of God, he was dead. He wasn't there. No one there to help. So as we think about Nicholas, I want you to begin to place him in his proper context. He was born sometime during the 3rd century. Uh, most people think he lived from 245 to 343. He was from the area that is modern-day Turkey, and you guessed it, Ephesus. 
But he was a righteous man who, although the pattern in Ephesus was the worship of virgin goddess, yielding to the Son of God, the emperor in Rome, the kind of people that would claim there is no name under heaven except Caesar by which men can be saved, but don't you take away our idolatrous shrines to Artemis or we will kill you. That kind of pattern was there, but Nicholas did not yield to it. It seems that he was a true believer. And the way that we know he was a true believer is not only did he survive the persecution under Diocletian, but he was raised in the best years of his life were under Constantine. And he watched what was going on around him. And Nicholas was not necessarily a theologian, but he put into practice the things that Jesus taught. What's interesting about the kind of things that he put into practice is he comes across men who are drowning. Nicholas's parents were wealthy shipping merchants. And when they died, Nicholas took over their business, so he is on the ships, and there is a problem with one of the boats, and three men are drowning. Well, Nicholas not only risked his, life, risked his life to save them, but then history records he spent three months with them to make sure that not just their bodies were saved, their souls were as well. He told them things like, perhaps the reason God spared your life was because He has determined a time and a place you should live and work, and that caused you to meet with me. I want to tell you why He spared your life. Just like the apostles that went before Him, a righteous man. Then, they say that the next major thing that happens in his life... Y'all remember the movie Sweeney Todd that came out? What a horrible movie. Uh, Johnny Depp may be a wonderful man, but what a wicked, disgusting, horrible story. Sweeney Todd is supposed to have been, historically, a butcher who didn't have meat for the town, so he caught and killed children and served them in pies to the people in the village. Well... Like most legends, there apparently was some truth in this, except the man was met by a real-life person named Nicholas, who was said to have saved children by teaching them about the wickedness of the man and to stay away from them, and he protected children's lives. This is where the story of Sweeney Todd came from, but the hero is Santa Claus. That didn't make it into the movie, St. Nicholas. At other times... In his life, he became best known for something else that survived to this day. Because he was wealthy and his parents had died, he was looking for a way to put into practice the Scripture. And the Scripture said where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so he was concerned about the wealth that he had accumulated, and he wanted to make sure that his heart was in the right place. So he began searching his village, looking for anyone in need that he could help because like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, he knew that God had a preferential option for widows and orphans. And what he found was three daughters who were not yet married and their father was well along in years and it did not look like they had much hope for an income. During this time period, if you were not married and you got to be a certain age and your parents were not wealthy, Prostitution was about the only thing left for you. And as Nicholas began to pray about this, he did not want these women to have to turn to something that was unwholesome. So he threw gold in their window. And as time went on, they needed more gold. But Nicholas didn't want to keep doing it the same way because Christians do things in secret so that others will be blessed and God will be glorified. So the next time he dropped it down a chimney. 
He did this for all three daughters so that they had dowries and could be married, make them attractive to someone. Can you imagine the time where you women had to pay to get married? Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? As news of this got out, people in the city started hanging their socks up by the fire because you dried your socks there. And who knows, you may just catch some gold in your stocking. As more time goes by, Nicholas is recognized for his godly behavior. And as he is known for somebody who prays and what he prays for happens, people started to send their children to him to bless my children. And when he prayed for their children, it happened. Many times it happened the very same year. So you get phrases like, what would you like this year, young man? As more time goes by, the story begins to get told to people outside of Ephesus. And because they're trying to describe somebody who is a religious leader, and people in places like Rome, when they think of a religious leader, think of a certain red outfit. I think they're named for birds. Uh, his garments became red in their stories, so everybody would understand that this was a man of God. Then as time goes on, it's told to people in cold climates, so it can't be a red toga anymore. Now it's got to be a red Dutch-looking coat. Righteousness always leaves a legacy. Galatians 6.9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Saints, we often struggle with the idea of Santa Claus in Christmas, but we have no problem celebrating Jesus' birth during a month and absolutely biblically could not have occurred in. October or March or April are the only way. Could not have occurred in December. Why do you think it ended up in December? That's right. We're used to worshiping the Son of God on earth with 12 days of Advent in December. By the way, Demetrius, do you ever wonder if he was sad because he got put out of a job by Paul? He never got put out of a job. Christianity did not cause shrines to Artemis to uh, go away. In fact, you can go to Ephesus and in the archaeological record, actually in the layers of the dirt, you can see that they made shrines to Artemis in the first century. But somewhere in the second century, the shrines to Artemis began to wane. By the third century, the shrines to Artemis suddenly had a baby with them. We had a virgin goddess with a baby. See, Demetrius never lost his trade. He simply accepted a new part addition to his message of, of syncretism. Isn't that amazing? We have no problem accepting religious uh, icons all around us, but we have a problem accepting a man who is revered because he actually was a saint. Not a saint because some ridiculous Roman machine called him a saint. I mean, how guaranteed is your sainthood if they call you a saint? In 1969, a single man... Uh, the vicar of, of Christ. I say that almost wanting to... The vicar of Christ. In 1969, desainted 900 people. I didn't say that. That's, I mean, you can find that on Wikipedia as soon as you leave there. So, so those 900 people, uh, what about the hundreds of years people venerated them as saints? Well, uh, the medieval church was corrupt. 
Really? Just the medieval church? Was it just the medieval church that was corrupt? I one time asked a uh, universal Roman theologian publicly in front of a few thousand people, what do we do about the hundreds and thousands of Bible-believing Christians that were burned alive by your institution? Because we've all made mistakes. Oh, okay. Then he went on to say there were atrocities on both sides. I'm sure that's how Jesus will view it. Saints, there are patterns in this world that are trying to force us to conform. Now here's the ironic thing. Just like there was a mistake in an event the other day where somebody saw the presence of alcohol and was upset because they felt like they were put in a position where they had to compromise if they accepted something, and that wasn't right. Jesus was around that very same thing all the time without a compromise. We're put in a position where we don't want to compromise the truth of the gospel, but we've misunderstood what the truth of the gospel is. We think that we have to throw Santa out of Christmas to make it holy. If you threw St. Nicholas out of Christmas, there would be nothing left that was holy. Isn't that a strange concept? So next time you hear Christians saying, let's put Jesus back in Christmas and get rid of the fat guy in the suit, maybe we need to examine what's left of Christmas if you don't have saints doing godly things in Christmas. The last time I talked about this, I told you that Santa saved Christmas. And he did. Were it not for the story of a man named St. Nicholas, all you would be left with is Romanistic practices that we have put Jewish names to. And what would that really be worth? How's that any different than Demetrius? Simply putting a baby with the virgin God. Saying, our kids need heroes. I want you to be their heroes. But I don't think there's a thing in the world wrong with talking somebody into letting those kids sit in their lap and you bless them and you pray for them. Maybe we could present Santa as somebody who is sold out in love for Jesus who prayed and prophesied to his kids. Somebody who is willing to risk his life for the gospel. Then all of a sudden, you wouldn't need elves to make him magical. You wouldn't need reindeer and a sleigh to have him do amazing things. You'd just have the power of the Holy Ghost. Does that sound like something you could rally behind? Well, in a couple of days, you're going to get a chance to share this kind of information with all of your relatives. Now, I'll understand if you don't want to prevent, present the universal church in Rome in the way that I did. I'm not asking you to. But you can certainly present the truth of the real warriors of the faith in the way that we did and hold them up as heroes and then live lives like theirs. Amen? Well, stand up and let's pray. Righteousness leaves the legacy. Unfortunately, unrighteousness does too. Some wicked Roman can call himself God and declare December the time you should worship him. And 2,000 years later, people are doing it all over the globe and they don't even know why. But righteousness leaves the legacy. Three men from the east can show up. They can worship a child. In 2,000 years, we are numbering our checks by the day he first arrived on the scene. People of every tribe, tongue, and nation on the planet are worshiping him as their God. The revelation that Peter got didn't come through propaganda. It didn't come through the forceful pattern of this world. It was revealed by God, and it changes from the inside out, not the outside in. This is what we've received. This is what we take our stand on. Let it grow in you. 
share it with everyone that you meet. We need to not be lackadaisical in sharing our faith. People are dying. I want to pray? Yes. All right. Why don't you join hands?